G'day, and welcome to this episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm also going to say konnichiwa because I'm recording this intro from outside of Starbucks here in Tokyo. Today, we're sitting down with one of the 2023 Syngenta Growth Awards winners. James Carl's story is fascinating, and it's one of these moments where I just absolutely love the chance to sit across someone and pick their brain and ask them questions about something that I'm really genuinely interested in, whether it was family business, succession, um, how he actually manages his time between what he's doing in the paddock and with various boards. But what I didn't probably realise walking in was that over 60 years ago, an American farmer would be sitting down reading the American Farm Bureau magazine. Unbeknown to him, it was a moment that would prove pivotal to the development of Australia's cotton industry and Australian agriculture would actually never look the same again from the 1960s. James's father was truly a pioneer in Australia's cotton industry and so it was incredible to be able to pick his brain and, and chat about all of that and the history and what it was like coming to Australia as, as an American kind of 10 or 12 year old and what it's been like to build his career in agriculture over the last 50 plus years. So let's jump into this one. Enjoy it. And if you want to hear any more about any of these topics, I think James is probably someone we'd love to sit down with again in the future. So if you've got any questions, hit us up. And maybe we can take them to him. James, firstly, I, I, I guess I saw your very, very brief speech at the Syngenta Growth Awards. <laughs> it <laughs> was what, brief. It was very brief. I think all you said was, Thank you and walked off. So um, if we can just make a pact that we'll get a little, little bit more out of you today, it'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> more comedy, you can't stop me. <laughs> no, James. Um, that, the, the problem there was that it was a case of um, I'm accepting an award, which I'm, I'm not accustomed to for a start, but I'm also not accustomed to taking accolades and I'm going, uh, I'm really uncomfortable here right now. So that was the issue. If we were just having a yarn, you would have been struggling to get me off the stage. <laughs> okay, well, we'll see how long this one goes. Yeah. <laughs> and to be honest, I, I, I'm going to say I don't even know where to start today. I think your story, what you've done, we've been chatting for probably been an hour now, just um, off air about the different areas of agriculture that you and your family are involved in. And I think we've only touched the surface. But let's start at the Syngenta Growth Awards. That's where I first saw you. What was running through your head when your name was read out as one of the Growth Awards winners? I did say when I got up there that um, I, that I was thrown because um, I fully walked into the room and sat down with the intention and expectation that I was just going to be supporting and clapping on and, um, and supporting the winners. And I'd uh, settled into a meal and a couple of good red wines, and I thought, this is going to be really fun. <laughs> So I, everyone says they weren't expecting it. I, had, I was just clearly there thinking this is good for, and the um, the reward for me was going to be the uh, the networking that earlier that afternoon. I met some really intelligent people, and a good lot of people from all across Australia and New Zealand. And I thought I'm going to I'm going to follow some of these guys up because they're really interesting people and. And I'm really pleased I'm now part of that network, and I've got got somewhere to go and 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 chase people up and talk about what they've done. Because, again, we only touched on the surface of what they'd done in, in that afternoon networking as well. And um, I, I just thought, this is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. You say some impressive people in the room. You, are, you and your story is incredibly impressive just in and of itself. Did, do you feel like an Im imposter in, the, in that room when you see what other people have been up to? Um, no. Uh, no, I don't. No, I don't. I'm, I'm not that humble. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm well aware I've had a really blessed life um, and I've said before that um, I've, I've got such a variation in the careers I've had and even overlapping each other and, 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 um, and coinciding with each other so um, I, I just had such wonderful opportunities and, and the, it all started with uh, as far as innovation and, um, and, uh, and I won't use sustainable because and that's another story. Innovation and, and development of, um, of whether it's an industry, a company, or a project, um, that to me has just always been exciting, and it's a driver. And that came from my upbringing, and that came from um, Dad, of course, but it came from landing in Australia as a 10-year-old with um, parents and, and his partners that were going to build a uh, industry which became 
regularly in the top five exporting industry, agricultural industries in Australia, um, out of nothing. And literally it was out of nothing because everything required as support mechanisms and infrastructure for uh, growing cotton in Australia wasn't here. So um, it, you had to be innovative and you also had to be positive because it would have been really easy to just go, this is all too damn hard. We never realised we're going home. But that was never in the back of Dad's head and that's the way I grew up. That's never going to be in the back of your head. So I want to ask you, at, at 10 years old, you moved out to Australia from... California, yep. And your dad decided we war. Can, can I ask why? Had he been on multiple trips here? Why we war? Yeah, that, that's not a long story. There was a uh, Hungarian plant breeder who applied for a job breeding wheat for the New South Wales Department of Agriculture in 1959. So he was here already. And he was working at the uh, Watson Research Institute in Narrabri and breeding wheat for the department. And he was a pretty clever man. He was doing fine. What he was also, as a Hungarian, in, was a cotton breeder back there. And he was working here in Narrabri, and he just recognised the soil types, the climate, the fact that Keeper Dam was nearing completion and he was well aware that there were no licenses, irrigation licenses being issued because there was no demand for them. And he just thought, this is really weird. And this is the perfect opportunity to build a, uh, a cotton industry. And Australia at that time had five cotton mills. They only consumed about 200,000 bales a year between them. But all of that was virtually imported. The only cotton produced in Australia at that time there had been a cotton industry in Australia for the previous 20, 30 years, but it was dwindling. And the reason it was dwindling is because it was based on 1930s technology and it never moved forward. So it was just not working, not happening. And the only cotton gin left in Australia was a little old one in the middle of Brisbane. And the only real cotton being grown was in um, central Queensland with heavily subsidised production. And the quality of that was with varieties that were so old that mostly the cotton was unspendable. So the mills were importing virtually all their needs. And Nick was sitting in Narrabri breeding wheat. So he went to the, his bosses and said, look at this opportunity. And they said, short term, shut up and breed wheat. And uh, enough, enough of talk about that. <clears throat> so he tried again sometime later and got the same response from some different people. And he thought, I don't know what's going on. This is really weird, but I, someone's got to know about this. So he uh, printed an article in the American Farm Bureau magazine, which goes to every farmer in America. And um, both my dad and his partner, Frank Hadley, uh, picked up on the article because they all both subscribed to it. And they were chatting about it at Rotary or Church one day, wherever they caught up, and said, we should go and have a look. So that's how they came here. Incredible. What made your old man, Paul and Frank Hadley, the, the people to really get the industry going here in Australia. What were the characteristics? Um, Dad had already decided he didn't want to be a farmer in California anymore. <clears throat> and Frank was the same. Dad was, um, was um, more row cropping. Um, Frank was an orchardist growing stone fruits mostly. Both of them were, were feeling um, over-controlled in that um, the government the California government at that time, and they didn't get much better actually, the, it just absolutely controlled what you grew and with quotas and, and, uh, and subsidization. So we had a moderate-sized farm for California in those days. It's about 350 acres. To utilize that, Dad was growing eight different crops because they were all restricted to 30 acres of that, 40 acres of lucerne, 25 acres of walnuts, 50 acres of almonds, rah, rah, rah. So he had to have the capital equipment for each one of them. So it was just ridiculous. There's no way he could make money. And all he was doing was working for the government because he'd never got to make a decision. Every year they got to make the decisions about what he did. And he said, I'm not doing this anymore. He just hadn't figured out what he was going to do instead. And Frank was similar. But already they Australia. were... Already they were innovators because they were already building their own equipment for their, some of their selective 
enterprises at that time anyway. Dad was already, the, uh, the, the almond harvesting operation was all hand done and it was just starting to become mechanised and some of the early models were pretty hopeless and pretty brutal to the trees. And so Dad was already, uh, with, with the manager he had, designing and building better and more efficient tree knockers and sweeps and pickups and that was just, it was in his blood. What did, like, when he started farming in Australia, do you recall what he said about the opportunities here and, and what it was about Australian agriculture and cotton production here that was different to America? <clears throat> when we came here, he didn't know either. So the reason they came as partners was because they needed, did an initial visit had a look around. They got taken by New South Wales Department down to the MIA, to the southern region, and that was the problem. They developed that, and the snowy scheme was finished. They then went about buying tracts of land and delivering off-river delivery systems of irrigation water to farms, which they'd subdivided into 400-acre farms. Those guys down there didn't want a bar of it either because partly it was foreign to them, but mostly um, they're happy doing what they're doing and, and just weren't interested. So it was all starting to look a bit like a white elephant. The snowy scheme was fine, but they'd spent a lot of money on the delivery system and it just no one wanted anything to do with it. So they were trying to attract any interest in irrigation farming in New South Wales to that region. And, um, and Dad and Frank just said, look, that's great, appreciate it, and, and we'll, that we'll even go down there and have a look with you, and that way we can actually show you what won't work. The varieties were just totally unsuitable for that shorter summer, and the climate was just way too short a summer. Um, <clears throat> and even, two years later, after we got established, well, after we started to get established, and we, were, we actually went to the, the trouble of leasing a farm down there and attempting to grow a cotton crop down there and it was a financial failure. And we said, look, we didn't, we didn't orchestrate that result. That's the best we could do. It would not work. So it got left at that, but that was the problem. So when they came here, they had no idea other than um, they agreed with Nick Derrera in that this was the perfect climate. All the weeds here were the same weeds they were continuing with in California. So they thought it's gotta be the same climate, grows the same weeds, and they're just as healthy. Um, the soils were better than ours in California, and there was a water supply. So they thought, well, he's, he ticked, he's ticked all those boxes. Um, the only trouble is there's no infrastructure, and there's no support. So the challenge is going to be to build a uh, critical mass of participants fast enough that we can build the infrastructure post-farm gate and pre-farm gate in suppliers of inputs so that all this is going to work. And, and if that hadn't happened, it would have failed anyway. So there was, there was about three major challenges in, in setting out to do it. However, they did one visit, and um, we're only here for a week or 10 days. Went home, thought about it, didn't talk about it for several months, and then got together and said, we really should go and have a second look. So they came back. And a week after they got here, they rang their wives and said, guess what? We just bought a farm. <laughs> so that, that's how much they knew about Australian agriculture, other than what they gleaned in two one-week-long visits. What was your teenage years like? The what? What were your teenage years like um, here as your dad was establishing the business the, or the industry? It was not surprising. Um, there was an attitude that everyone was welcoming. Personally, they were all welcoming. There was, there was, um, um, they made everybody welcome in both families. And, and, um, and there's a lot of uh, immigrants that moved in behind us, having heard what we did, all felt the same about California. And so there was um, like 30, 40 families um, descended on WeWall in the, in the next three years. Uh, some of them went home again. But... Um, yeah, um, that's how fast it started to happen. And it only took a year or so before some of the locals said, I'm, I'm over this boo-hoo and tall poppy syndrome because the, the perception being passed around was that these Americans are coming in here, they're going to spend a lot of money, um, go broke, leave a lot of debt, and hightail it back 
across the water and leave everybody high and dry. And um, that kind of stuff sticks. So we were continuing with that. Personally, everyone was happy and friendly, but um, there was an undertone. And the undertone was not spoken to the, um, to the, to the face, but it was enough that, interesting enough, my first year of school here was uh, last year of primary school, which was in Weewall, and I was ostracized and picked on, and I just wanted to die, um, except for a, a high school student decided after watching all this go on for about three or four months, stepped in and told everyone to back off. So I survived. Um, but the teenage years, I, there wasn't a high school in, in uh, Weewall in those days, so uh, my, my high school years were in the state school in Narrabri, and that was um, good timing because um, the headmistress mistress came in and ran the school just as I went there, and she was brilliant and ran a great school. So I had a great time. And going from there to University of New England, you, you started off studying, I think it was an ag economics degree or something similar to that, and you worked out that actually what you were you were quite driven with what you wanted to get in terms of the skills to actually run a business and the uni wasn't offering it. So you actually came up with a proposal to the university. Talk, talk me through that story. So um, it actually happened to two of us at the same time. A, 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 a relation of my dad's partner in, uh, in California had followed over as well, but he, they didn't move here. They moved to Queensland. But Fred and I ended up going to uh, Armadale Uni at the same time and coincidentally had applied for the same degree course, Ag Economics. And within six months of starting through for year one, we are just sitting down at the back of Bruins Bar one night over a beer and said, I'm, I'm sick of this, I'm not doing this, I don't, I don't, it's wrong. And Fred goes, oh, I thought I was the only one that thought that. So we started comparing notes and, we, and it, it was... Um, it was too basic. A lot of the uh, components of a egg economics degree were just too too basic. There was just no meat to them, and it was largely around livestock as well. And we were farmers, and um, and we identified what where it was missing the mark. And um, so we we actually had to scramble a little bit to even pass first year because we'd lost interest in everything except football, women, and beer. So, so I need to ask you, what kind of football by this stage? Were you a true Australian? Was it rugby or were you still watching? No, no, it was rugby. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but I'd never played in high school because it wasn't available in Narrabri. Yeah, gotcha. But I got to uni and they were all playing this rugby union. I thought, that looks pretty cool. <laughs> it didn't take me long to hook into that. <laughs> so we got, to, uh, we got to the end of first year and uh, had actually just scraped through and we had to wait for our results to be sure because neither one of us were confident. And when we did, we made an appointment with the dean in January to uh, to go back and talk to him about this issue, and um, and I think the only reason we got a hearing, in fact, was because he was the patron of Rob College Football Club, so we actually knew him, and I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have got an interview otherwise. But he said, "I'll give you 15 minutes on Thursday, the 10th of January," and we went, "Okay, don't think we're going to get through this in 15 minutes, but we'll give it a go." So we went totally prepared for 15 minutes. We just put in front of him a piece of paper and said, there's 32 units, and they all have a reason why they're important written beside them. And so we just threw it at him. He goes, woo, 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 we need to talk through this. So we're there for three hours. <laughs> and in the end, he said, what, why do you? We said, we just want an education and how to run a small business in a rural environment in Australia. And ag economics is not it because it's got no law. It's got no tax law. It's got no company law. It hasn't got any accounting. It hasn't got um, business management. Um, it has got very little marketing. And and it, and it, I'm, we're not just talking about running a farm. It wouldn't matter what you're doing. If you go back to Narrabri in the 1970s and wanted to run a small business, ag economics was not going to equip you to do it. You'd be left floundering with every service supplier that you wanted to deal with because you wouldn't know whether he's telling you the truth or not. So um, he came around and he said, yeah, you make a good point. But the problem is this covers five faculties. How are we going to possibly do that? Because there's clashes everywhere. We said, that's our problem, Dean, not yours. We'll deal with that. 
And he goes, but it doesn't fit any degree. And we said, yeah, we know that too. We suspected you might be worried about that. He goes, no, you have to be pursuing a degree at UNA. You don't come here for any other purpose. Okay. So um, we said, well, what's it close to? He said, well, it's actually pretty close to an economics degree. He said, but it needs two more economics, pure economics units. And we said, like, what's the choices? He said, and he rattled off five units. And we looked at each other. We said, we'll take that international marketing one and this other one. And he said, right, what are you going to cancel? I said, nothing. You're not getting it. We want all those other 32 to help us run a small business in a rural environment in Australia. And he goes, so you're going to do 40, 34 units for a 32-unit degree? And we said, if you insist. <laughs> so, so we agreed. The fun part was we both passed it and, and got on with our lives. But the fun part was about seven years later, I happened to be reading through some material from UNE and they developed and were putting out for offer a degree called an Applied Economics degree and the core subject base of that was exactly the sheet of paper we put on his desk six years before. I thought, how cool. Writing university degrees. Yeah. <laughs> what is it about you, James, like when, when there's a problem placed in front of you that you'll just find a way, like this determination to find a way through it? It can be driven by a need or it can be driven by uh, you told me it can't be done. And dad was the same. You didn't tell dad it couldn't be done. And, and I just grew up that way, you know. And, and maybe it can't be done, but I'm going to find out. Yeah. And so we got told that um, one classic was that uh, we got involved in some aquaculture down in Tasmania back in the 90s, and it was being um, supported and run by some Japanese researchers. And there were still, two of them were still on staff when I got involved. And I said, why the hell do we try and sort and grade scallops out of the water? It's killing them, literally. There's a percentage of them that are dying. You can't keep them out of the water that long. And they said, well, that's, cost of, 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 that's what you do. I said, well, what, what, there's got to be a way to do this underwater. And the Japanese said, if there was a way to do it underwater, the Japanese would have figured it out a long time ago. And I said, well, I would have thought you would have too, but because you guys are the experts, but clearly you haven't. And he said, no, it can't be done. I went, oh, you should not have said that. <laughs> <laughs> so Dad was away sailing around um, the Indian Ocean somewhere at that time. But when he got back, I said, do you want something to do, Dad? And he goes, yeah. I said, come and share a red with me and we'll talk about this scallop sorting underwater. And so we were playing around with figures and, and pictures and stuff and he got really interested, and I thought he would because he was looking for something to do. And I said, how about we go and sort this out? And he said, what do you mean? Go? I said, well, how about you and Mum move down to Tasmania for six months, and um, there's a few other things I want you to sort out with the business as well, and we'll just sort this one out for a start. And uh, we'll, we'll get you a house to live in. And, and um, he said, that sounds like fun. So I went down there and played some more with it, and we had the conceptual idea pretty well sorted. So then we took it back to the Japanese, and they just said, no, that won't work. And if it would have worked, we'd have figured it out. And we thought, mm, okay. <laughs> so we went to a local engineer in Troyabana and said, were you prepared to help us with this because we need a workshop? And he said, sure. Can I make a bob out of this? And we said, sure. But you're not expected to do it for nothing. We're doing it for nothing, but you don't have to. So away we went, and, uh, and it took... So Dad stayed there. I was back here most of that time, but um, he kept telling me where we were up to and, and we'd throw in ideas back and forth. And in the end, they did it. They created and and it just it went to Japan. We know it did. And they said, why don't you patent it? And we go, yeah, right. How do you stop people building their own sorter when it's that easy? Yeah. So we never bothered, but we know it spread around the Japanese industry. <laughs> it can be done. Yeah, it can be done. What were your career aspirations as you, like the degree design was to run a small business in rural Australia, but what you, your dad was establishing and playing a key role in establishing the cotton industry here. What were your aspirations as a young fella stepping out into the world? Um, I didn't have aspirations of being an industry leader until I became one. And, um, and that opportunity came about when I was asked to uh, consider taking on a directorship of cottonseed distributors 
Cottonseed Distributors is the only seed supplier uh, to the cotton industry in Australia, so they are a monopoly, which was never to our liking, but there was nothing we could do about it because um, the landscape was, we were so competitive that no one wanted to be against us. So any other seed company just left the country, and two of them did. Um, but it became um, entrenched as a, uh, a party to the structure of the cotton industry in that there are three, these, these days, very prominent entities at the top of the industry that um, collectively and collaboratively um, run the industry. So you had the cottonseed business, you had the um, CIDC, and you had Cotton Australia. And Cotton Australia's largest um, responsibility is advocacy, and, the, and they just do that really well. And then, but we, and CIDC is obviously research and government funded largely. Um, CSD is um, not funded anything other than by seed and traits. So um, the three of them, um, collaborate so that there's not overlapping, there's not duplication, and there's no gaps. Um, years ago, we lost the CRC, the Cotton Communities Research Corporation. Yeah, something ish. Ish. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, that's terrible. Now it it met a demise because there was no further funding. We couldn't get a, re a renewal, and and um, while that was a bit disruptive and and very sad for some people, but the um, getting on with life, we, we identified the gaps that was going to leave and the other three picked it up. And some of that was done in, in a joint venture activities between the other three. So <clears throat> Cottonseed Distributors became, it became an increasingly important link and I was invited to become a director of that and um, it was only um, a very short period of time, a year or two before I was vice chair and then um, I was the, the successive chair after that. And I stayed there for 19 years. And, and that period of time was, was uh, overlapping with other things I was doing. And it was a crazy lot of fun, which, um, which is why I just love what I do. Um, I get to have all kinds of fun and, and call it work. The, I can be out at 4 a.m. and clearing a drain pipe in the bottom of a field with spiders and crap crawling all over me with somebody else giving me a hand. And five hours later, be in a boardroom with the coat and tie on, talking to the global managers of Bayer. And quite a contrast, but that was life. It's been my life, and I just love it. What is it about agriculture? Like, what has it enabled for you? That fun? No, I, I do. I, re I just really enjoy what I do. I love farming. Always have. The um, we have a family farming business here, and um, and I took that on. Dad pretty well handed that over when he's in his mid fifties. It's yours. And how old were you at that stage? Um, late 20s. I was um, about three years home out of uni. And since then, we've been um, operating. At that time, we were nearly insolvent. About 10 years later, I'm sure we were, but I wasn't asking too many questions because <laughs> <laughs> the bank was still on our side. So, uh, and, and, and not to say that can't happen again because that's agriculture. But um, so we've had we've had a roller coaster ride. There's some good times and some not so good times. But even in the not so good times, it doesn't stop you being positively minded about let's make it better, and that might soften the next bad time. And CSD was the same. It was um, it was struggling. I mean, its its livelihood was seed sales. So if there was no water, there was no seed sales, there was no income for CSD, and it got pretty ugly. But the good thing about that uh, experience and, and the, what that allowed me to help do, because pretty much in everything I've ever done, is, is not me on my own. I can't think of anything I've ever done exactly on my own. What I've been blessed with is ability as a leader to get good, really good people around me and make things happen. And CSD is exactly that. So I was steering the ship, but I was down the back with the rudder. There's other people up the front. And um, and they were more the face of CSD than I was, but that's fine. I didn't have to be the face of CSD. But we, we uh, restructured the business where it was no longer just a seed company. It became a crop management 
company and it's now producing um, digital apps that are um, sought after all around the world because they actually work. And they're only reason to work. It's not rocket science. We went about developing and building eight years worth of data before we built the apps. And everyone else in the world wants to build shiny little apps that don't work because the um, their data source is um, is models. So models are only as good as somebody made up to put in it. But um, and and it's just taking the time to do it right and 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 get it right in the first place. So it was, it was really good fun building that business up. And it's now um, the we got to the point in um, in the early 2000s, about six or seven, when we actually didn't have much capital. But it became very aware that also that was just building into the the start, the serious part of this dry cycle that we've just had for the last 20 years up until 2020. And that was in the early part of that. And um, so we weren't doing all that well because people weren't buying much seed. But it's also when we became very much aware that the, the, the Commonwealth government who funds CSIRO research uh, was being quite flippant and radical, um, irrational at times, about whether they're going to be in agricultural research or not. And so one year you go, yeah, no, that's all the go. We're, they must have needed to vote somewhere. And then the next thing you know, there's talk about just cutting it all together. We thought, well, the problem with all that is that it was a CSIRO's breeding program that was the backbone of the cotton industry because they were just ticking boxes like you wouldn't believe. And we had a great team there, always have had, still have. Um, most remarkable breeders, some of the best in the world, and still are. It would have been really tempting, and uh, there would have been plenty of participants if it was an opportunity for the likes of multinationals like Bayer, Monsanto, Lucentinta, Sibagaygi, all those guys. Would have loved to have just thrown a check at the Australian government and said, "We'll buy that off you," mm. and that would have been the end of the cotton industry's uh, comfortable position as well. Wouldn't have been the end of the industry, but it would have been made it uncomfortable. So we tried to buy it, and of course we got the obvious answer: "Like hell, you're buying it." We said, "Okay, well let's get serious in about how we do something together." So um, one of the greatest things we we pulled off, which was um, it, under, under the chairmanship of John Grellman, but um, I was vice chair by then, and we um, and we we developed, which still exists today, and is now held up by CSIRO as being the best example of the model of doing business with between research agencies and corporations, and 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 uh, private sector money. And the the reward return for CSIRO is as great as it is for uh, the other participant and for the for the industry. And the best part about all of it is we locked it in to the point that no one else can buy it without us refusing to buy it. So it can never be lost to the industry. And that was just an, uh, such an important step. And um, and that's how it exists today. That that. Uh, a, set of agreements and it's just a joint venture it's not even an entity we, we don't have a tax file number it's just a joint venture but it's renewed uh, in advance and it's currently renewed well into the 1930, uh, 2030s um, because everybody likes it so much and it's more than likely that in another 10 to 15 years it'll have surpassed the income stream of CSIRO's inventing Wi-Fi. Wow. Remarkable. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So um, boards and uh, and CEOs of CSIRO these days go, this is how we wanted to do research. Do a bit more of this. Yeah, and, a bit uh, more A little bit this. less of that. Yeah, so it was great fun setting that, that model up. And then, of course, you've got to keep it relevant. So it's constantly being adjusted and, and reviewed and and made relevant to all parties and keeping everybody happy in the tent. Hey, it's Nick here, Sheep Farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. 
those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision, and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. You've always, uh, well, I'll say you've always because it's what you tell me, but in terms of, as we've been chatting over the last few days, about the importance of things being good for the industry and, and not about individual competitors. I think it's really interesting how, how you look at your business and you say, well, we don't actually have competitors because of we're all in it together, marketing together. At a farming level, it never ceases to amaze me, and, and, and in some cases it does amaze me, they might be a bit strong, how so many farmers think the guy across the fence is a competitor, so I'm not going to share my ideas with you. And if you think I'm going to tell you what I put on that crop to, to make it yield an extra tonne of the hectic, go to buggery. That's my secret. I go, he's not your competitor. Canada is your competitor for Durham. Um, Russia's your, China, your competitor for basic milling wheat, not your neighbour. So where is that, where's that mentality coming from? But it's entrenched. There's just so many agriculturalists, and it's not healthy because while you're not sharing, you're not improving each other. And you're not even allowing yourself to improve because you're missing out what he could have been showing you. Mm. And, and the GRDC are doing their best to break that down with all the, the field work they're doing. And they do a bloody good job of it too, but it's a big challenge. Well, and I know that they've just, we missed out on it, unfortunately, which is a bit of a sore point. No, but they're, they're investing hugely in terms of communication channels. So upping their podcasts and their videos to actually get that information they are. in front of growers. What, what's it going to take? Like obviously the leadership, but what's it going to take to, if you, if you had a magic wand and could wave it, like what would you, what would be something that you'd change or implement to make? Australian agriculture more collaborative? The biggest, the biggest hurdle is uh, individuals' um, perceptions. So, and I'm not quite sure how you change that because it's different from different people. Some people, a good, a good conversation will swing them around to thinking something different. Mm -hmm. Others are just so entrenched you can't. But what will help, the recent American model works so well, and it does because they've actually got political sway at federal level. They can swing an election. The farmers of America can swing an election. Australian farmers couldn't do an election. So the difference is that the industry structures are very clear, very concise, and at the top there's one. Too many Australian industries have a collaboration of a combination of, of several different peak bodies or nearly peak bodies that aren't actually working that greatly together, and it's really easy for a government to divide and rule that. I'll give you an example, a, a more basic regional example of that. So in the, um, about 20 years ago, um, I'm very much involved in, in water issues, as you have to be if you're an irrigator, otherwise you have no water left at all. The, um, in the Nemoy Valley, there are four water use source groups so you've got the river system, the uh, unregulated stream system, the groundwater system of the lower Namoy, and the groundwater system of the upper Namoy. And there are four different associations, one for each of those. The obvious thing to me always was that why have we got four? It's basically the same water source. It's rain falling on the Namoy Valley. So why, why, why are we duplicating and why are we fighting each other? When you looked into it, which I did, um, and some others with me, the obvious answer was that divide and rule. Every time the department came out to give us more bad news, they would tell the lower Namoy groundwater users that they couldn't do anything about it because it was those blokes in the upper Namoy that caused the problem. And they'd tell the river water users that it was the problem of the groundwater users. And, and they did it all the time. And it was pretty easy to discover because all you had to do was be a participant in more than one of those groups and turn up at the meetings to hear them 
tell you one day how good you are and the next day how you're the worst bastard in the world to a different group of people. So in, those, in, the, um, in the late 90s, there were several of us from different, those different groups tried to persuade the groups to join together, simplify our administration, simplify our representation, make it one body and all be part of that and have it in the constitution that none of those four groups could be ever diminished out of their their right to be involved and and be influential in that group. Um, that was all locked in. It failed. The first attempt failed. So um, we were hugely disappointed, but we let it go and stopped, stopped beating that drum for about five or six years. And then there was an, an instance where the government got really, the government representatives, Department of Water representatives, got really sloppy. And they came up and blatantly did the same divide and rule activities, but it was so blatant that they were being really careless. And uh, it just angered so many people. So the small group that had tried to do it before got back on the wagon, got back on the phone, and we put it together with support in two weeks. So hence Nemoy Water, which has, is representative of all three of those groups, those four groups all ex have places on the board of Namoi Water, and Namoi Water is the voice of irrigators of the Namoi Valley, and wider in a lot of circumstances. Um, and the, uh, the department can't divide and rule anymore because the Namoi Water uh, executive are at all those meetings and just go, well, no, hold on, you can't say that. And the, um, the ministers now sit up and, and have a listen because... Um, Namoi water actually speaks with authority. That's what agriculture largely needs. We don't need multiple groups. We need multiple groups feeding into a body that actually has a hearing at levels that make decisions that matter. And we just, in so many industries, we don't have that. In cotton, we do. I was going to ask you while we're talking about water, because I think it's really, well, it'd, it'd be interesting for you to explain, but cotton gets a lot of, I guess, eyeballs on it in terms of consumers and, and the broad Australian public looking at it going, cotton's bad, Australia's the driest country, continent in the world, blah, blah, blah. How does the whole water system work? How does it work whether you decide you grow cotton, you grow lots of cotton, or you grow none, year to year? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and, the, um, and the answer's not complicated, but the, um, but the perception is really quite muddy. And, and that's orchestrated by the people that want to create the bad perception. And that is also really easy to do if you, if you speak first. So then any refute by the cotton industry is goes, oh, you guys are just sour grapes because you got caught out. And the people making the statements in the first place absolutely know that. They're just playing that game. So it's a difficult one. But the, the answer is, uh, and to the point that there are a lot of cotton growers when introduced to metropolitan social groups and in, the, in groups that they become mixed with, they will actually deny the fact, no, they won't deny. They will not put forward the fact that they're a cotton grower. Yeah. They'll put forward the fact that they're ir irrigating crops. Yeah. But they won't mention cotton because they're just going to cop flack over the whole dinner party which has happened to all of us some point or another. And, um, and so you tend to avoid it. I don't. I've got thick skin. But, <laughs> but the answer to your question, the second part of your question is, is really simple. And it's in here as well. Oh, there the, we go. Uh, the answer is that you will grow, and any irrigator will grow, the crop that produces the best return. Now, that varies, and, and generally speaking, that's why, um, it, particularly where the climate's right, there's cotton is such a proper, popular crop because commonly, very commonly, cotton is the most profitable crop to grow per hectare. But if there's a water shortage and you're being limited on your production across your whole enterprise by the lack of water, in fact, cotton is not the highest return per megalitre. So there are other crops. Um, the classic one is mung beans. You can uh, you can make um, two to two hundred and fifty percent better return on mung beans per megalitre than you can out of cotton, but it's only about a quarter of the return per hectare. 
Okay. Got that? Yep. Yep. So cotton's producing. So you're growing more, in, in a nutshell, you're growing more mung beans per megalitre of water, but you can grow a lot more cotton per hectare than you can grow mung beans per hectare. And cotton's worth more. Gotcha. So the profit per hectare. So it comes back to a decision on what um, are you, your uh, restraint resources. And commonly we believe there are five resources to do what we do as irrigation farmers in northern New South Wales. And we need land, we need water, we need capital equipment, we need capital, and we need people. Now, whichever one of those is the most constrained is the one that becomes a decision maker. And that can change within a calendar year, within a budget. It doesn't normally, but because you can normally see further ahead than that. But uh, if that ever changes, then so do your decision patterns. So when you say, what do we choose to grow? Um, it depends on how much water we've got. But so there was a period, um, it's happened twice in the last 20 years, where with the dry cycle, we were uh, running out of water and we had plenty of people, we had plenty of land, we had all the equipment and we weren't going to leave them sitting idle. So we were growing four times as many hectares of mung beans with the same water that we could grow one hectare of cotton. So we could keep at least two-thirds of the farm employed, land, capital, machinery, people, by doing that, instead of if we'd have just grown cotton, there'd have been people had to be laid off, machinery would have been sitting idle, Land would have been laying fallow and the soil health would have been deteriorating because of that. Um, none of those things are working. So those five constraints, those five resources, just simply our decision-making comes back to whichever one's constrained. And it seems like a very rational decision-making. Do you have an emotional tie to one of those five key areas more than another? Oh, I say no. I've... I say with a little bit of pride, I've never sacked anyone in my whole life. And now, that's not to say I haven't encouraged people to leave and actually help them find another job because this one wasn't working for him or me. And um, so I'll help them move on, which is different to saying there's the gate, piss off. But of course, people are very important to us and really are because we do a lot of work um, more and more these days with developing people and people's skills in agriculture and managing the style of agriculture that we're involved in and we're training them and there's over 10 percent of our of our staff are trainees and it gets up to 15 percent regularly and that's kind of pushing the limits because you're running out of resources to maintain that but but that's how important that is to us um if if machines if the um Cash flow is not all that great for four, five, six years, and the machines are getting a bit of age, we'll nurse them through. So they don't have to be turned over unless circumstances prevail. But so I guess really, um, yeah, people would be, be the one that waters the most critical to an irrigation farmer but, um, and decision making. But um, we, just, we just go out of our way not to put people off because they're just too important. In the 2010-11 flood, we'd already had 10 years of dry cycle, and it got, those years I mentioned earlier, seven, eight, and nine, got really nasty, and we were down to minimal production. There's no way, uh, with groundwater only, which is only about 20% of our water supply, and then we got down to that, there was no river water at all. And we can't make a profit at that level, but we still refuse to put people off. But what happened was, um, some left, some decided to go and do something else, some retired, and we ended up with about two-thirds of our staff left. And it didn't matter because there was nothing to do. So it just relieved the pressure of finding them something to do and trying to support them when I didn't have a profitable budget. So I did that. 2010-11 flood came along. Suddenly we were at 100% of water supply. There's nothing wrong with the equipment. The land was prime. We were not at full production for a year and a half after that because we didn't have the people, so I couldn't do it. And there was no way we were going to flog the ones that were left here to try and do it. We said, no, can't be done. We just got to work our way back into that. And everyone was in the same boat, so trying to find help 
in 2012 was crazy stuff. Fighting for everyone. What's next, or what does the future of your business here look like? You've got one, two sons? Three. Three sons back in the business now. What does that evolution of your business here look like? Really, really strong and really and, and a lot more fun. It's, it's going to be, uh, it's really positive. The, um, when they were going through high school, there's three boys under three. The third one's 10 days younger than the first one's third birthday. So they went through high school together. They, they had a lot of fun at TAS and, um, and it was great on weekends because their mother and I only had to take them to one sport, one venue, because they were all doing the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Halfway through high school, I recognized a pattern in their development and they were all totally different. Um, except that they did get on really well and looked out for each other when they were at boarding school. I thought, well, that's a, that's a plus. Um, but there was one that was clearly going to be academic and, and, and administratively very sound. There was one that was just hands-on. Wanted to, He actually wanted to be a, a pilot, but he ended up becoming the farmer. And the other one was tearing apart uh, remote-controlled toys at four years old and rebuilding them into something else. So that, okay. There's a mechanic and there's an IT guy. Yeah. Um, and as they're finishing high school, that's where they're all headed. So Daniel went off and did a business degree, and he's now running the, um, the administration and business management of the, of the family farming business. Um, Sam is the farmer, which came as a bit of a surprise to him as well. But two years after he finished high school, he worked out that he actually loved growing stuff. So he's now the farmer. And, uh, and Matt is maintenance, IT, and harvesting, just loves harvesting equipment. Yeah, okay. So they got three different jobs as a management team. They're all home. Um, when we have a management meeting, it's really fun because they all want to know what each other's doing, updated on what's going on in your world. Um, but never once in the seven or eight years they've been home have any of them ever seriously questioned what one of the others is doing and why because they don't want their job they're really happy in their space and they go well if that's what you and dad figured out then it must be right and so what's your role in this are you the coach um if you look at our organizational chart <laughs> i am actually still at the top thank you very much yeah <laughs> and i think i'm called managing director even oh there you go that um when they came home um the reason the 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 prompt for them to come home when they did, which was um, around 2015, 16, was that in late 2014, um, our neighbours, and incidentally it was Dad's partner, the Hadley family, decided to um, um, sell off the last of their land. And they'd been doing that for a while, but they kept the, the, the land in the Namoy till last. And they, um, and they offered it to us as a lot, a single lot parcel. And they said, if you want to break it up, you, you don't get it. If you want it all, you can have it. So um, it took a whole week to negotiate that deal. But part of the week Long was... by your books. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, part of that week was getting the boys home and saying, here's a proposition. What do you think? And they were pretty excited about it. And, um, and I said, well, that's interesting because so's the bank. And they went, well, what's your problem? I said, my problem is I'm 65, and unless you guys are coming home, I'm not doing this because I don't want to be here in seven years' time on my own. I just don't want to be here in, in my 70s running all this by myself. It won't be quite as much fun as it used to be. And they said, oh, Dad, we're coming home. I said, okay, good. So they did. So um, that's, that's what brought them home, and, um, and they're just flying. I told them at the time when we um, settled down into it and worked out roles and worked out salaries, of course. And uh, it's, it's a single business. We don't, we don't divide farms. So the, the, the eight farms are all a collaborative of a single business. Mm -hmm. There's three, four subsets of management territory. Yep. But um, it's all, the farm is all managed by Sam, the, the, administration and, and um, business management is all done by Daniel. The maintenance and the support is all done by Sam, uh, Matt. All of that is a single unit. And I told them at the time, I said, now, if, if the big proverbial bus comes along and takes me out any time in the next 12 months, you guys are 
in the shit. And I mean deep. You're too young, you're too inexperienced, and I don't know how you're going to get through. It'll be really tough. You want to hope that just doesn't happen. In about two or three years, you'll struggle, but you'll get through, and you'll wish I hadn't died. In about four or five years, you'll uh, be comfortable that you've got it, but you'll just be a bit tentative. In six or seven years, you'll wish you didn't have to take time off from a funeral because you're too busy running the farm. I said, that's what I reckon. And, Ma- <laughs> and Sam said, so, Dad, <clears throat> what are you going to do then? And I said, oh, and by the way, in about that time frame, I reckon I'll um, just become potentially redundant. And Sam goes, so, Dad, what are you going to do then? And his older brother Daniel said, Sam, you weren't listening. He said, potentially, he ain't going nowhere. <laughs> and he's right. We're at that point. They are running the show. I get the pleasure of um, ringing them up and saying, what do you want done this week? Because I've actually got about four days free. (laughs) (laughs) And they know not to give me all the shit jobs, but um, some of them aren't all the glamorous ones either. And so um, this morning I was changing siphons at four o'clock in the morning, so that's okay. And I don't mind that um, because I balance that with um, sitting in a boardroom with somebody else. And I just think it's a great experience and great life because I get time to think while I'm doing either one of those jobs. I've got time to think about what I'm doing, other things that I'm doing, where the business is going. It's, um, we're just trying to, uh, we, we believe we're very close to the scale of operation we, we think is ideal. So we haven't got great, great growth aspirations much anymore. Mm-hmm. That could change. But this is the current thinking. And, um, and they're also starting to build families, so they don't wish to be at work 15 hours a day either. So um, I, I just think it's more of the same, but more of the same means that we just keep looking on how to improve what we're doing way and beyond where we were five years ago. Um, most recently, a few years ago, we, we had one of the farms become accredited as carbon positive. Yeah, better than neutral. Um, last year, we had our whole farming operation across all eight farms, our management systems, declared carbon neutral. I want to ask how. What have you guys done in order to be able to become carbon neutral? Partly is uh, retaining and looking after and improving our riparian zones, which we don't cultivate anyway. Mm-hmm. And so that's stocking areas. But uh, we're also collaborating with um, Landcare and um, Country Road and people like Country Road now want to want to tick that box. Yep. And so they're getting involved, um, supporting financially activities in in several different uh, regions in New South Wales, and I believe they're moving into Queensland with that effort as well. So that's going on. But we've been doing that for fifteen or twenty years before before that came along. So we've been we've got a pattern of developing that for a long time. The soil carbon um, um, building has been going on since we were in New England running sheep in Ben Lomond, and we um, we thought that's when the first chatter about all the carbon and the carbon credits and and how you're going to make a mozza out of selling them and all that kind of chat was going on with no substantial evidence of any of it, but it was good chat. And we thought, I wonder what, how that really would work. So we started looking and testing our soils up there in the, in the mid-90s on this grazing country. And by um, early 2000s, we'd built that up from 0.04 up to about 0.8. And we thought, we'd double it. And we thought, that's cool. And we'd done that with holistic management and just um, simple grazing techniques like eat a third, trample a third, leave a third, and just uh, just building organic matter in the soils as working really well the um the uh it was difficult to do out here um because of the dry cycle and and that becomes really difficult to maintain soil carbon let alone build it because you're not growing crops yeah so it's it's pretty hard to do but in 2020 we we could see the end of the dry cycle coming and and beginning of a decent wet cycle so we um started actively testing soils here on, on Wee Wall Farming and um, 
found it to all be around about 0.5, 0.6 after extensive dry cycle. And I thought, yeah, I wonder what it was before that because it would have been pretty nice. Anyway, we've already built that up to 1.4. Yeah, wow. In about two and a half years. And and that's just by that rotation program that we use that um, is is loaded with, we grow five crops in, in um, four years, and the rotation cycle is designed to rotate chemistry, both herbicides and, and insecticides. So there's a whole 18 months of it that we don't use Roundup, and that's pretty hard to do these days in agriculture, but in that cycle, there, there is a period where Roundup doesn't go near that paddock. And then um, it's also rotating the amount of organic matter we're putting back into the crop. Mung beans put bugger all in, but corn puts massive amounts in. So that's that's all happening. It's breaking the disease cycle. Mm-hmm. So some of them are host to the semi-host to some of the diseases that cause us a fair bit of grief. Others are not. So it's rotating that, and the um, and and it's just developing farming systems that retain the stubble, but we're not no-till. Can't be an irrigation. It's too too tough, and I wouldn't want to be anyway. So. We're minimum till, so we'll plant two of those five crops go straight into stubble of the crop before them. The other three are behind tillage that turned all that into the soil so we can get on with rotting it down and creating carbon loads instead of rubbish on top. So can I ask, um, do you you foresee like in the next dry period that your carbon levels will actually drop again? And is there a risk of not maintaining carbon neutrality for a short period of time? I would expect that's possible. Yep. Uh, you, you can't control that situation if you can't grow anything. Yep. And 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 cropping, leaving, it's been long known, um, fallow, long fallow syndrome is just nasty. And uh, But if you have got no moisture to grow crops with, that's what you end up with, um, regardless of how good an operator you are. Um, so it's possible. But we we won't anticipate it because we will be anticipating that potential scenario before it happens and be trying to um, create a, a loading of carbon that might carry you through. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. And that's where you'd be willing to change the type of farming as you lead into a potential dry cycle. Yep. To, yeah, okay. Yep, that all works. So, uh, well, a couple of questions, I guess, to wrap. But if... If you were getting back into agriculture today, if you were stepping out of the golden gates of university again, and you could do absolutely anything in agriculture today, what would what would be an area you think you'd pursue? It's a bit like the owning your house. And um, I'd, if you've got a dream that you're going to own your own farm, that's that's a really tough call. And you're going to need a lot of help somewhere along the way to achieve that. But I, I, I just don't. And, the, and you see a lot of people now that um, have, have recognized the fact that you can actually get satisfaction and enjoy what you're doing by just having a responsible job of managing tracts of property um, as long as you've got a decent landlord or a decent boss. Um, I, I know lots of people that just go, you know, I, this is the best of both worlds because I don't have the worry of it all going pear-shaped. So if it does pear shape, I'm just, I'm, I'm not wearing it. Mm. Um, I just think that the opportunities in ag are the same as they were, except if you've got a hell-bent desire to own your own place, then you, you, you're beating your head a bit. Otherwise, um, take your pick. There's, um, a, a, I don't know an in ag industry in Australia that doesn't need good management and will pay for good management. And um, and the um, rewards and job satisfaction in in good run organisations uh, will make that pretty comfortable without the risks. Yeah. So one final question then: You'll be heading overseas, I presume this year, twenty twenty four, on the trip. What are you most looking forward to when you get to mingle with the group of winners again? What do you know that I don't know? <laughs> I don't know when we. I guess we're going, but I've. There's been no dates mentioned. Presumably so, this year. So it might be this year. <laughs> I've just, I really enjoy that. I, I got to do a lot of that when I was um, um, the lead of CSD. We had international relationships with um, um, 
Monsanto, Bayer, Sebagoge, Syngenta, uh, with all the, the heavy hitters, because they're all in the same industry we are, and, and we're doing things that, um, that mean that we need them, and quite regularly uh, they need us. Because uh, we're supplying the best germplasm in the world to um, to all the leading cotton-producing countries, except the ones that don't recognise the contract. The um, but the rest of them, uh, that's where we are. That's what that's where CSD is, and that's what we were doing. And so we had the benefit of uh, experiencing a lot of travel and mixing with a lot of um, CEOs and, and high-level managers of of uh, multinationals, and they're really not that ugly and dangerous. Yeah, what I really love about all those guys now, um, and by guys I mean the corporations, as and when they keep reducing a number, with we haven't got Monsanto anymore, but um, even before Monsanto went, so I go back half a dozen years, all the ones that were there then were were uh, results of others that merged together prior to that in the last twenty years, and Syngenta is absolutely a product of that. There wasn't a bad attitude before, but I think those majors now all have a really strong desire, a true honest desire to benefit and and um, make farmers do better. Now, I was in the Akim game as a distributor all through the 70s, 80s and 90s, and, um, and they were my suppliers. I can't say that it was exactly the same honest opinion held by them they were more interested in the shareholder profits quite frankly and the uh, and the competition was fierce to, to get it i think there's a culture change in those big companies and and syngenta is a classic they i they genuinely genuinely want to help farming industry and you could be cynical and say well the obvious answer is that if their farmers aren't doing well they're not buying your product so you're not going to do well um and that's that's a truth, mm. but I don't think it's a driving truth that makes these companies do what they do these days. I think they generally have an interest in seeing agriculture do well. Yeah, I think I think at the core of it all is they are human beings, and I think uh, when it comes to agriculture, people genuinely care about what what it is that they are doing. And I think what's amazing about the bigger end of town is that what they do actually has a global footprint um, and impact, which is. They do, and what they do around the world is not a lot different to what they do here. So it's not like they're putting up a front in Australia and New Zealand that they're not backing up around the world, except, again, I say there's a couple of major countries in the world that don't recognise a contract, so it's pretty hard for those guys who need to earn a quid to do any business there, and, and frankly, I wouldn't be either. But uh, other than that, um, that's true, they really do, and they... And they um, Syngenta uh, do a great job of that, and they um, and they've been moving in that direction for way more than a decade. Mm. Well, James, thank you so much. I feel like we're going to have to come back and chat to you again. I think we've only just hit part one of God knows how many parts, but uh, it's been fantastic sitting down with you and hearing a bit of that journey from ten years old right to where you are today and where the business is heading. So, thank you. Yeah, we skipped a few bits. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure, and thanks for, uh, for thanks for making it so easy. It's been a good discussion. Thank you. Well, that's it for another episode from us here at Humans of Agriculture. We hope you're enjoying these podcasts, and, well, if you're not, let us know. Hit us up at hello at humansofagriculture.com. Get in touch with any guest recommendations, topics, or things you'd like us to talk and get curious about. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Rate, subscribe, review it. Any feedback is absolutely awesome and we really do welcome it. So look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. We'll see you next time. See ya.